Princess Yachts, the UK's leading luxury yacht manufacturer, proud sponsors of Motorsports Formula One coverage. Can I please welcome on stage Motorsports Editor-at-Large, Simon Aaron, and the one and only Nigel Mansell. Thank you very much. Thank you. We've, uh, we've got a script down here. I've, I've written my, um, it's, I've written my uh, speech tonight on a piece of paper here, like this. And, you know, what is it called? Earth, wind, and fire. So what you do real quick is like that. And then you rub your hands together. And what happens is you create water. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, what you've got is, uh, is a piece of ice. So you can share that. It, it's supposed to be solid ice, but I'm afraid the um, refrigeration here wasn't quite as powerful as uh, we had hoped. But I don't, I don't think you need wet hands, but there you go. You can feel that. That's quite good, isn't it? But then what you can do is this, <laughs> and everybody can have a little bit of refreshment. Sorry I told you that. you needed to know about the fire exits. Sorry about that. Um, Nigel, thank you so much for yeah, joining us. Well, we can do, I, do I need to do yeah. I need to Oh, yeah, this? you haven't paid me yet. You, you haven't <laughs> paid me yet. You, you, you haven't paid me, so I mean, I don't know what's happened. Uh, <laughs> Everything catches fire, doesn't <laughs> it? Mean. Um, I think tonight is going to be a voyage of discovery, but a very exciting one. Um, Nigel, before they we... think they're in control, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> with, with my memory in travelling from America today, it's a little bit off. But before we start, uh, I'd just like to say a few words, if I can. Uh, Edward Aitken, Motorsport Magazine. Rob Johnson, Classic Sports Finance. And I've got to say most sincerely, uh, the family here tonight, I can't say what a joy it is um, to be amongst you all. I just feel like I'm part of your family or part of mine and all the years that you supported motorsport and especially my career. I mean, we have in the audience here lots of people from England but from Europe as well. And we've got people also from Australia, Japan, America. You know, God bless you all for traveling and, and making this. I mean, I don't know who you're gonna to listen to tonight because he's coming on in a minute, but I'm going. But, <laughs> but no, a big thank you to all of you and, and hopefully we'll have a lot of fun over the next, uh, is it 10 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> so thank you. Before, before we got into the sort of your career, I really wanted to sort of touch on current oh, Formula be, One. Before we started this evening, <laughs> be, before we, you know I followed you through the car park. Your wife's not here, is she? No. You know you got that blue handkerchief there? Yeah. You dropped one in the car park. Do you mind if I give it to you? It's, it's, it's this one here. <laughs> <laughs> oh! <laughs> Put it away before. <laughs> right. Thank you. <laughs> I want to be one, one minute in, and this has been like no interview I've ever done. Um, Simon, thank you for helping. That's um, all right. Yes, sir. So <laughs> I'm, quite, I'm quite happy you're sitting there watching this one. Carry on. Um, so, uh, before we got into your career and all the stories that entails as the pack of cards come out, um, I really wanted to talk to you about current Formula One very briefly. Uh, over the past couple of races, we've seen Charles Leclerc sort of become the new, the new boy at Ferrari. Uh, you raced for Ferrari for two seasons. You won Grand Prix with them. Um, it's, it's pretty impressive, isn't it, from Leclerc? No, it's fantastic. And um, I think, you know, hats off to Ferrari for keeping Formula One um, at the forefront. And, 
and exciting and alive because um, obviously it's been dominant with Mercedes and I think take Ferrari out of it as with Red Bull occasionally, um, you know, it'd be uh, very, very difficult. But for Charles to, to do what he's done, I think is sensational. I'm really pleased for Ferrari because uh, they were making overtures that they might not be with the sport much longer and that would be devastating for Formula One. Uh, obviously, I'm a huge fan of Formula One myself and for only be 20 cars on the grid, of which there's only 18 because Paul Williams can't compete. Um, you know, I was used to in the 80s and 90s having 46 cars pre-qualifying for 30 places to qualify for 26 places for the race. And these present day drivers have not got a clue how fortunate they are to have, number one, the safety, but two, the technology. It's the most amazing thing to be able to go in a car whether you're number two or number one driver and realize that you've almost got a 100% uh, finishing record. So it's very good. If you can smell anything, it's my skin. That, <laughs> that's third degree burns, that rocket fuel. <laughs> I should have held on to the ice a bit longer because <laughs> it's burnt my hand a little bit. But no, I mean, it's truly fantastic and it's great. And I'm just sorry that Red Bull uh, Max has had a couple of great races and a couple of indifferent races the last couple as well. And it's a shame that he's had those first corner incidents. There is a little bit of insight. Can you remember what it was like first time you went to meet old man Ferrari at Maranello. What, yeah, no, what was that like? I, I'll never forget it. I mean, uh, Mr. Ferrari himself, uh, Enzo, was the last driver to actually uh, be signed by. He tried to sign me back in the 80s and uh, it didn't actually come together because Honda wanted me to stay. But I almost went to them in the early 80s, mid 80s, which people don't realise. And um, I, th I think the most astounding thing when we went out to lunch uh, the one time before I signed, there was about 30 of us uh, to the canteen, Italian restaurant, as you can imagine. If I fiddle with the watch, it's because we're launching this new watch tonight, you see. <laughs> TW Steel. It's, it's really good buy. I mean, it's, it's, it's cheaper tonight than you can get it at all. If you wait a couple of weeks, it goes down in price. So really <laughs> When's it going to catch fire? That's the, but that's the smoothest segue I think the, I've ever seen. <laughs> the thing that's absolutely amazing was... Um, you're at Mar Maranello, you're falling in love with the... The atmosphere jumps out the walls there, or it used to. Um, and, I mean, you know, we had the biggest team then at Ferrari with 187 people. To think there's over 3,000 was quite astonishing. So the micromanagement of Formula One now to what it was is uh, you can't compare the two uh, completely. And uh, anyway, we're, we're at lunch, and uh, the noise, the Italians make noise. Any Italians here? There's a couple of Italians here, I know, yeah. Uh, Compliment there to, eh? Io molto stanco oggi perché molto lavoro, Ah, see? But um, no, the, the situation, uh, noise, noise, noise. And I remember, because I was right next to him, all he, all he did was this. He, he went to move to get the salt instantaneously. Silence. You could, you could hear a pin drop. That is power. <laughs> and then when he reaches for the salt and does this, still silence, puts the salt back, comes back, picks his knife up, and then everyone, the racket's amazing. <laughs> the power of the man's astonishing. The other thing that's so astonishing with Ferrari is just a quick story for you. I went there for the first time and met this guy because they, they sack everybody real quick there. <laughs> And so the guy I met, I didn't know who he was. I thought he was a cleaner. And uh, I hadn't got a Ferrari tie, and they sent me all the gear to wear to, you know, my first visit. And I forgot my tie, so I said, I need a tie. He got me a car tie. I looked in the corner, and there was a brand-new racing Ducati in the corner of the Ferrari garage. 
And it was beautiful. We only walked past, and I said, oh, that's lovely. And I didn't think anything more of it. Anyway, a week later, a brand new racing Ducati came to my home in the Isle of Man. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Early night. And then next visit I went, they got me to test a new Testarossa. And so I tested on the track a new Testarossa, which was a bit pointy, which obviously meant it turned to the corners real quick. And I said, look, I really think you'll need to alter the front suspensions. So it understeers a little bit, because if you're on the roads and it points in, you'll spin and have an accident. Not real good for selling cars. So they altered that, and it was really good, and I said it was really nice. Like two weeks later, a new Tesla Russell arrived at my home. <laughs> so, I mean, this is, a nice, this is a nice company to drive for and work for. <laughs> so the next time I went there, we were testing, and the, the car was late, and we had to go down to Estoril to test, and we were a few days late, and getting us all down there was a problem, because you know, we did mix schedule and private aircraft at the time. Anyway, as, as you do, he only had six Falcon 900s at that time. He was running privately. He said, oh, borrow my Falcon 900. So anyway, as you know, I've been a captain of jets for 35 years and helicopters and various things. So I flew the Falcon 900 down to Estoril and obviously had two other captains with us as well. But I was in the left-hand seat, which is the captain in charge. It was a beautiful plane. I got off the plane, I said to the captain four times, I said to him, I said, you understand? <laughs> I, said, I said, I love this aircraft. I love Bellissimo, Bellissimo, Bellissimo. I love this aircraft. Please tell Mr. Agnelli and Mr. Enzo Ferrari, I love this aircraft. There's a limit to generosity. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still waiting for the goddamn gen. But it was worth about 35 million, so anyway. But, but great stories. I know you're boring about that, but, um, but I will tell you one other story where I went testing. And it was, it was very strange because, I mean, even 34 years ago, I can remember vividly. And we just had our first son, Leo. And I don't know why he wanted a blue teddy bear. So I was running late with the testing. Long story short, I jumped in the Tesserossa with my overalls, which is a dumbass thing to do, but anyway. So I didn't get changed, because when you're in Italy, if you're two years of age, ladies and gentlemen, or 92 years of age, or 102 years of age, guess, do you think they know who races for them in Ferrari in Italy? Yes, they do. So I go to the uh, local village in Marinello to get a teddy bear, and there's all this line of traffic, and I pull out, and obviously you do silly things as a race car driver. And, uh, I mean, to this day, I mean, you just think, how can you be so dumb? <laughs> so I get to the front of this long queue, and there's submachine guns. Whoops, I've dropped that already. There's submachine guns, there's police officers, all the rest of it, and they go like this. Oh, oh sugar me. So I go over there, I pull over on the side, and I'm thinking, as I, I'm thinking behind the scene, this is going to go down really well. I'm going to get arrested now, and all the rest of it. Then, two machine guns here with two guys from the army and all the rest of it, two police officers, and they march in unison like this. I'm thinking, what the hell am I going to say? I I'm, my brain's going at 2,000 miles an hour, just like in a Formula 1 car. How the hell are you going to get out of this? Anyway, they come close. And I press the window down, and I go, hello. And they go... <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe this. <laughs> if you're a Ferrari driver, you've got a passport for anything, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, I've never played for an Italian meal around the world ever. Now, you go into Italian restaurants, my favourite now. <laughs> 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 it's, it's amazing what you do when you're hard up, you know. <laughs> 
But no, I, I, Ferrari is an unbelievable family to be part of. They do some crazy things through at times, but I love them to death. And please pass on that message to the Italian fans <laughs> and the Tafossi. They're absolutely unbelievable. Nickname Ilioni, the Lionheart. So well done. Thank you very much. So. <laughs> you, um, you, you briefly mentioned Williams there. As, as a Williams world champion, multiple Grand Prix winner, is it sad to watch them at the moment? Catastrophic, I would say, to the racing fans and to the memories I have at Williams. I mean, you had a dream team there for a very short period of time with Adrian Newey, Patrick Head, obviously the two drivers, um, Sir Frank and um, Jenny Williams, his wife, and uh, Sheridan Thin, who is director of a commercial, which is very important, it brings the money in. And uh, I mean, you know, it's not just with me, it's with other drivers as well. Um, when it goes, you know, really good, you have to resist temptation. And it might be from Ayrton Senna, Alan Prost, or other sponsors. Don't break up a good thing, you know. When you've got success and you've worked so hard for it. Um, but they sometimes, a uh, perfect example, which you can depersonalize it from me as a driver, from Damon, myself, and other people that have got compromised at Williams, I think. When I signed outright number one contract in 1988, in 1987, when Nelson left for the big buck uh, for his retirement, um, I got number one contract for Williams. And, you know, it's going to be the most fantastic year in uh, 88. Number one driver. First time I, drove, I actually signed a number one contract. How happy was that? You know, being bridesmaid in 86, the incredible accident in 87 in Japan where I broke my back, which was a bit painful, which you saw on the screen. Not recommended to hit the ward, 172. <laughs> Don't go in the air and then come back right across the kerb. So the kerb hit me. I had 87G up the spine, had spinal concussion, and I lost the use of my legs for three months. But, but putting that aside uh, before I, I, I miss the point, I was really looking forward to the 80, 80, 88 season and then just from a commercial point of view, and we know Sir Frank had his terrible accident, but then the engines we were supposed to have in 88, uh, obviously were brought from Sir Frank for the last year for 24 million pounds by McLaren and Etten Senna, Alan Prost and McLaren. So then we had um, the uh, Judd engine, no, no uh, shame on that, but it was way below par. Uh, if you look at the stats, so it's not my opinion, I finished two races in 88. That's the reliability we had. So I was number one driver in 88, expecting to win the championship or at least be a main contender, which psychologically is you know, quite a thing when you're risking your life because, believe it or not, we used to risk our life on a daily basis with practice and qualifying. And we used to risk our life all through the winter going testing all around the world because our simulator uh, didn't exist then. Our simulator was a racetrack. So we used to travel the world three, four, five times a year. Whereas present day, can go at home and go in a simulator and have all the wind tunnels and have micromanagements and they don't even have to set the cars up themselves. But so we lost the engines. Uh, the number one status didn't really mean anything. I finished twice and came second twice. Uh, always because the weather conditions helped me. Uh, Silverstone, without Senna, I think there was a one. But, um, but no, it's, it's one of those things that when you look back, um, Adrian Nui for me, uh, and I hope he hears this tonight from me, I think, uh, no disrespect to Sir Patrick Head, who is brilliant. Sir Patrick is, I'm a huge fan of Sir Patrick. Uh, I call him the bulldog. 
He was the most brilliant human being for me as a race car driver. He said it as it was. He really did. But he appreciated hard work and determination. And I'll give you a few facts on that in a minute, which will make you laugh. But Adrian Newey, for me, was, was a hot shoe with the new era of aerodynamics, the new era of wind tunnels. And, and so their biggest mistake was to let someone go like that. And that's where you've got to compliment Red Bull, because Adrian Newey's tried to be courted by Ferrari, tried to be courted by many people to design their cars. Adrian Newey's on a lifetime package while he still breathes not to develop or design any other car other than for Red Bull. Patrick Head, um, let me explain something there which is brilliant. But one of my first races with, with Patrick was, was very funny. Uh, I got knocked off at Rio de Janeiro, Rio de Janeiro and, um, and I won a really good start for a new team. Uh, I think the, um, the second race at that time was Portugal Estoril. Anyway, it was 1985, I was with uh, Keke Rosberg. I, been, I drove with four different world champions, which was pretty inspiring. Always as number two. Well, that's nice, isn't it? <laughs> that's why they like me so much. <laughs> I never got it. I never got the memo that you're not supposed to be as quick as them, otherwise they get upset. I don't know why. <laughs> but the, the 1985 Honda engine, or any turbo engine at then, it was amazing to drive. It was what is... I call FW11B the most fantastic car anyone could be privileged to ever drive in their lives. Why? Okay, no power steering. You can't drive it with one finger. You can't do a race and get out like you've just come out of the movies or out of the hairdressers, <laughs> you know. You're hanging on there, boy. No traction control. And this is the biggest kicker, which is fun. You had uh, 350 horsepower. With a split second, it jumped to 650. And within one and a half seconds, somewhere between one, one and a half seconds, a big turbo would kick in, and you could have 1,500 horsepower in qualifying. <laughs> so when you try to anticipate a turbo, which means this, you're going into a corner, 90-degree corner. We used to race at tracks like Detroit with 90-degree bends and sometimes more with concrete barrier there. Bailout, no. Bailout, no. Bailout, no. Going into the corner almost 200 miles an hour. Bailout, brakes fail. No bailout, ladies and gentlemen. You were committed. If you, you overcooked it, you're in the war. So anyway, halfway around, you're trying to anticipate the turbo. So before you go in the corner, as you backed off it, you're braking, but as you're backed off it, you're accelerating at the time before you go into the corner and you just hope it doesn't kick in early because <laughs> you're in trouble if it does that. <laughs> the most scintillating experience I've ever had in my life is going down Detroit and qualifying at 175 miles an hour in sixth gear, wheel spinning down the straight. <laughs> you couldn't put the power down on the ground. It was amazing. Change of tyres and pants was required after every pit stop. <laughs> it was very important. And don't tell anyone, I actually said to them, turn the boost down a little bit. <laughs> I can't put the power down. <laughs> no, it was, um, it was a beast to drive. Uh, our feet were this far from the front of the nose cones. So, you know, even today, people complain, I've not got it in here, never mind, I thought my feet were hurting. <laughs> Most of the time, I actually walk on solid carbon fibre. 
because both my feet are completely smashed, and that's because, obviously, now the feet are right behind the front axle. The crushable structures are amazing. The FIA have done an absolutely brilliant job. The manufacturers have done a brilliant job. And obviously, the tracks have been well and truly altered beyond belief since 1994. But FW11B, getting back to Williams, it was sensational. I mean, my first win, if you remember, was 1985. And I'll never forget with Keke, we went as um, about a second to a second and a half behind the pace. And we had a test one week before the Grand Prix or two weeks before the Grand Prix at Brands Hatch. And we lowered the rear wishbone down. It was called anti-squat. Patrick came up with it because we just couldn't put the power down. It was ridiculous. Put the power on it. <laughs> and if you didn't have the strength in these arms to hold on to the car in a corner at 170 miles an hour, guess what happened? You went off and had an accident. You know, you didn't have all these runoffs that go, oh, I'll just jump over there and come back on and then complain there's not much grip over there. <laughs> Normally, when we went off the track, the barrier is right there. So... Patrick and Adrian and Keke and myself, we were really trying to put a lot of input to the car. We had oh, 15 different engines that year. I mean, Wacko Japan and uh, Honda were fantastic. Every race we had an upgrade. I mean, we blew at Monaco. I remember we blew, I think, 10 engines up at Monaco. <laughs> it was an astonishing, absolutely astonishing year with Keke that, and Adrian. notorious power circuit. Oh, <laughs> it, was, it was such good fun. You never know what was going to happen. And um, so with Williams, you know, fantastic team. But when you let things get away from you, it's very hard to get back to that. But the memories I have, I mean, especially with Keke in 85, we were, in, we were qualifying there, and I'll tell you this, this is quite funny in a way. Um, awesome power, just in qualifying when you turn the... You had different sized turbos you could put on just for qualifying as well. You couldn't race them because the lag was a bit, you know, but you put smaller turbos on for the race so they could fall off. Anyway, that's, that's what happened in the race when I was leaving it. Bloody turbo fell off. Anyway, I went through the tunnel and there's a big, there used to be a big bump in the tunnel and we didn't have all the lights that were on there. And anyway, I didn't realise I was so focused, you know, keeping my foot hard in to a real quick lap. I lost the car in the middle of the tunnel and did a 360. I did a 360 and managed to come out the other side and keep going. It was the most amazing stroke of luck. I don't know whether I had any skill or control, but I think uh, the good Lord was on my side a little bit. Not that I've had a few words with him. I don't think he's been very fair lately to a lot of people. <laughs> but the most amazing thing was I qualified. I got pole position. I came into the pits and everything else. And then Keki, my teammate, comes up to me. And he says, uh, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm okay. He said, no, no, I'm serious. Are you okay? He said, yeah. I said, I did okay. I'm on pole. He says, no. He said, he said, he said you know what happened in the practice scene? I said, no. He said, in the tunnel. I said, oh, the tunnel. He said, shit, yes, the tunnel. I was behind you. <laughs> Apparently, he was following me to try and get a tow. He saw me do 360, jammed on the brakes and was waiting for the engine tyres and bits to fly off the car. And obviously, all he saw was the smoke and slow down and everything else. Anyway, my teammate gave, gave me the biggest compliment. He said, oh, I was a bit crazy. <laughs> Now, your, your career started with Lotus, um, and you had a very special relationship with Colin Chapman, didn't you? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, ladies and gentlemen, I mean, I wouldn't be here tonight if it wasn't for the Chapman family, and I hope this message gets back to them as well. Big thank you to Hazel and Colin, and uh, you know, it's just an um, uh, amazing <laughs> opportunity they gave me, and uh, wow. And, and Clive, obviously, his son that takes over from, from Colin. Uh, what can I say except everything with Colin? Charismatic, brilliant. I mean, he was an entrepreneur like there was no tomorrow. He made you laugh, he made you cry, he fired your ass if he had a problem. <laughs> but um, I mean, there's certain things that I remember about Colin which are so dear to me. Was, um, I mean, and, and you can YouTube some of these things which are really funny. It was before we had radios as such. We had radios you plugged in with a plug and wire. And so it's my first qualifying at the Austrian Grand Prix, so it was 80, I think it was, just a few years ago. And, uh, and anyway, um, Nigel Stroud was my engineer, who was um, James Hunt's engineer when he won the championship. So, so Nigel Stroud's walking like this in front of them. Colin's trying to plug in all the time <laughs> to the radio, not quite getting it. So he got it in the end. He did Nigel Stroud's hand like that. So I was killing myself in the car because then Colin was trying to talk to me and Nigel Stroud was looking like, plug it in the car, plug it in the car. <laughs> and, and then... Obviously, Mario Andretti was driving then with uh, Alio De Angelis, and uh, Colin said to me on the pit wall, because I was driving Eagle, I was driving a car called Eagle. I was on the third Lotus, and the reason it was called Eagle is uh, about that much longer, it's a longer wheelbase like that, uh, to obviously Elio's and Mario's, and it was a lot heavier as well, and I couldn't qualify it. That was the time when I was alluding to Oh, crikey, I think there's 43 Formula One cars trying to qualify for 26 places. I was going to be about 28th or 30th or 32, but I wasn't going to make it. Anyway, I was on the pit wall with Colin, and Colin said, oh, this is going to be a quick lap for Mario. Now, this was before the times of electronic timing, so how they used to do the timing was on stopwatches. So then Colin's here, and he's on this part of the pit wall, and it goes this way, the track. And he's there, Mario's on the quick one now. You watch this, you watch this. And he's moving down the pit wall like this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'm moving down the pit wall with him like this. There you go. Look at that. Three tenths quicker. Bang. And then he argues with the timer that he's made second place on the grid. And I'm standing there, I know I'm new to the game, but <laughs> I, I know I'm a magician now, but that's really cool. I mean, so I've witnessed everything with Colin, and uh, oh God, he's he just so funny, but he was so fair, and he was like a father to me. Um, I mean, he gave me the last 10 minutes of two races to qualify for the Grand Prix. One was at um, the first race, which was in Osterite Ring, and he gave me Elio's car with 10 laps to go. Uh, no, it's fib. Five laps to go, it's ten minutes. Um, jump in the car and qualify it. <laughs> so I jumped in the car, unfortunately, I qualified. And then psychologically, you have to be psychologically ready in those days because people were getting hurt and killed and everything else. And then he gave me the last ten minutes of qualifying at Zandvoort, which then I qualified 15th, I think it was, with only a couple of tenths slower than Elio in the same car. And uh, he was pretty impressed with that, but then he put me back in Eagle to start the race, which was horrendous, because within five, six laps, you can imagine what happened. <laughs> and then I was relieved and petrified, because I went into the chicane on the back of Zambort, and the suspension snapped and threw me in the, in, the, uh, in the gravel trap, and I managed to sort of just miss the wall. 
But all these are very exciting times, but not as exciting because in YouTube, I actually dialed into YouTube uh, myself. Your first Grand Prix and your first race for any team is magical. You get one chance at your first Grand Prix. So with Ferrari, I won't go into it in a long way, but it's worth noting in a minute. But my first race, obviously, for Lotus was, was just sensational, except I'm sitting on the grid like this thinking, I'm in the race, yes. And I'm sitting there going, hmm, it's getting a bit warm here. Ooh, my bum's really warm. <laughs> I'm thinking, no, my bum's not warm. Something else is warm. I'm on fire. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, what the hell's going on? So I called my engineer and I said, I said, I'm getting burnt. What the hell's going on? I'm getting burnt. So he put his head down there, excuse me, between my legs, <laughs> and he said, uh, you got fuel all over you. Fuel was spilling out the bag at the back of the seat and making a puddle in the bottom where I was sitting in the car. So I was sitting in neat fuel and getting chemically burnt. And I was thinking, mm, this is really good. Now, this is on YouTube. You can look at it, and it's so funny. <laughs> and, <laughs> so what the mechanics do back in the early 80s, uh, you see the mechanic come with a watering can or a bucket of water, I think it was. You can YouTube it, so YouTube it. And then just before the race, you see this watering can, two gallons, go straight over the driver in the car. So I've got two gallons of water. I'm sitting in two gallons of water now, feeling, ha, oh, that's nice. <laughs> and I'm not suggesting for one moment you should have a moment like this, but when you're getting your ass burnt with chemical, put two gallons of water on and sit there. It's fantastic. <laughs> so then, obviously, we had a big debacle, and they said, you better stop the race. You better get out of the car. It's very dangerous. It could catch fire, and, you know, obviously, it's not good getting chemically burnt. And I said... This has been my whole life to be here. Why the hell would I want to get out of the car? It's not on fire yet. So we started the race, long story short. I come to the first two corners. Oh, sugar me. Every time I break bloody water spray straight down on the front of the... It's on the pedals. And then when I accelerated, it's raining. And this, fortunately, it only happened for a couple of laps because by that time, every got, everything got thrown out of the car with braking, accelerating, 3, 4, 5G and all the rest of it. I couldn't understand why the back was slipping a little bit as well because some of the water was going under the tyres. So then after two or three laps, it started to burn really bad. And... Uh, I went, oh, what am I going to do? Adrenaline, ladies and gentlemen, is the most fantastic drug in the world. I blanked it out for, um, this is where my pain threshold is crazily stupid. I blanked it out for 40-something laps. I think it was 44 laps before the engine blew up. I've never been so relieved in all my life. <laughs> and, but there, there was a problem to this. Two problems was I, I couldn't really get out of the car. And when I got out of the car, my hamstrings, because the feet were right up, you showed the, the, the steering column here as well, so you're sort of bent like that in the car. I couldn't straighten the legs because the hamstrings are shrunken. And that was only part of it, and I still suffer with problems with my hamstrings now. But the, the fun part was, that no one really realised, but I think it was 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning in the Birmingham Accident Hospital. I had third, second and third degree burns being de-roofed off the backs of my legs and my <coughs> bottom. <laughs> so that was really quite tough for a couple of, um, couple of weeks. It was a difficult start with Lotus generally, wasn't it? Because when you had the trial tests with Lotus at Paul Ricard, you went down there with a couple of fractured vertebrae after Andrea de Cesaris had turned you over at Alton Park. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, you got to the easy part. <laughs> yeah, that was really bad, wasn't it? Yeah, the, the timing is everything, isn't it? I mean, I, I, God, you've got a good memory. 1979, September the 15th, I think it was. I it was. did a, 
I did a somersault. <laughs> I was there. I did, I did a I somersault. <laughs> somersault Alton Park. Uh, Andre de Trezorus decided to stick a wheel in going down the Cascades, I think it was, and bang, 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 landed upside down, and the middle of my back got broke. Not very nice, that wasn't it? Anyway, um, I'm lying on a board in bed at home, as I normally do after I get out of the hospital, and I'm lying there feeling pretty miserable. And I get a phone call off the late, great Colin Chapman. He says, Nigel, he said, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing great, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> he said, I got a test in a few days down at Paul Ricard. I'd like you to be one of the drivers we test. I said, oh, fantastic. I said, how long? He said, oh, it's three or four days. He said, I want you to be the last driver. We've got Stephen South, Elliot Andrews, Jan Lammers, and a few other people, and you'll be the sixth driver, but I want to give you an opportunity at the end. I said, that's fantastic, I'll be there. I've never been out of the country, really. I, you know. <laughs> Poor little me. We still lived in a semi-detached house, and the road was there. It was quite interesting, really. And I'm lying in bed thinking, I can't bloody move. How the hell am I going to get down to Paul Ricard? So I've called, uh, I remember his name, Alistair Thompson. And he treated me when I broke my, mac, uh, my neck in 1977. And I said, I said, don't ask any questions. I said, um, I need you to help me. I need to drive a Formula One car in um, three or four days' time. Uh, can you help me? <laughs> He said, what? He just laughed. He said, your back's broken. I said, yes, but I'm getting better. Um, <laughs> what can we do? Because it's only a little test. What can we do? Can you help me? He said, he said, look, this is ridiculous. He said, the only thing I can help is that we've just invented a steel corset. I said, isn't that for women? <laughs> so, so anyway, he got a steel corset. He gave me the most powerful painkillers. arrived down at Ricard. And long story short, we should not to be bored. Um, I, was, I, was, I was witnessing the first day with all the hot shoes going on, and God, it was amazing. Gilles Villeneuve was there, Ferrari. I mean, Ferrari was one of my heroes then anyway. Gilles, who became a real good personal friend, Gilles Villeneuve and myself, he, he adopted me a little bit in the early days, which I'll talk to you about a bit later. And uh, I was so excited and, and so demoralised because I was trying to stand up and not hold on to anything to fall down. I was trying to sit down and rest my back. There wasn't a position I could get in that wasn't in pain. I was popping so many pills that the mouth wasn't working terribly well and obviously trying to soak everything in. It was absolutely astonishing. And, and then the, the biggest thing, I couldn't afford a friend to come with me or whatever. I was there on my own. I mean, how dumbass is that? You go for your first ever test in a Formula One car, you got no family, no friends, no nothing and no money. I remember it was a Renault 5 I hired at the airport to get there. And, uh, and anyway, I was soaking it all up. And then they said, right, you're next. I was going, oh, good. We haven't even made a frigging seat. So, and the seats those days were amazing. There were, it was a metal monocoque. And the seat, you sat in the metal monocoque. And where there was a few spaces, they put foam in. They didn't have any forming foam, it was just soft, spongy foam in and the seat belts. And I didn't want to cause any trouble, so I sat on the flat floor, had foam pushed in where there was a few gaps because I got a fat ass, so there wasn't much gaps. And, um, and they said, right, off you go. Oh, flipping heck. Now, my brain wasn't working really well then. I was overawed by the whole experience, so I went out. I forgot I was on tyres... 30 to 40 laps old. The car had just run non-stop for the best part of six hours with five different drivers. 
the, the, the gears and the dogs were all completely rounded off, which meant when you put it in gear, as soon as you put it in gear and put the gas on, it jumped out and hit your hand so hard, it felt like it was going to break your hand, so you had to hold it in gear, and it knocked it back. And then finding the gears and doing the clutch, because you had a clutch, you had to synchronise it, you had to heel and toe, and there was so much going on, I was totally overawed by the experience, until... <laughs> John Ilville came past in the Ferrari. Oh, I'll have him, I said. <laughs> it, it was in the fastest part of the circuit, going into the right-hander at the end of the straight before the horseshoe. I was so proud of myself, because, you know, down the straight, flat out, he's only a little bit quicker. So I followed him around the first bit, because it's flat out. The horseshoe, it had a bit of a wobble, so I managed to stay with him around the horseshoe and come out with the horseshoe. And then there was a quick snap chicane, and I was hanging on to him, and he went that way down the track, and I went straight off. <laughs> <laughs> I almost had the biggest shot of my life. And I went, what are you doing? You know? and, of course, and then when you went off, everything happens at 1,000 miles an hour. And uh, it woke me up, and I... Uh, you talk to yourself. Anyone in the room talk to yourselves? Hands up who talks to themselves. <laughs> right, we all have a little person in our head that says, oh, sometimes you did it right and sometimes you didn't. Oh, I wish I didn't do that or say that or could have done that better. I could have done that a lot better. <laughs> so I come tiptoeing into the pits because I couldn't hold my breath. And uh, I went, uh, oh, I just had a bit of a whoopsie. <laughs> <laughs> The problem was the team manager saw it. <laughs> he said, that wasn't a whoopsie. He said, that was horrendous. <laughs> I said, I got a bit excited. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, I was totally demoralised, the serious part of the thing. I make light of it, but I was six seconds a lap off the pace with my first test with Lotus, six seconds. That's with the drivers I was testing with and the quickest lap of the day. One or two seconds is bad. Three seconds is real bad. Anything over that is catastrophic. So I was really down and demoralized. And uh, anyway, uh, Peter Collins, I remember specifically, he was absolutely marvelous. Um, same with my second race at Williams, which I'll tell you about in a second. He said, Nigel, he said, I know you won't compute this. He said, but it's the first time ever in a Formula One car. First time ever. He said, download the information tonight because we all have a conscious brain, like we're talking now, subconsciously and consciously. But the conscious brain is interacting with you now like I'm talking to you. The subconscious brain is a brain that you have to program with re repetition. So race car drivers don't just get the ability to race, it's by practicing and it's doing the right things just like with golfers, tennis players and everything else. It's repetition that then program the actual subconscious brain. And they proved, because of all the work I did with McGill University in the 80s, which I did the benchmark for all athletes back then in Canada, that a fastball from a baseball uh, thrown from um, the thrower to the catcher, the baseball um, travels at 0.44 of a second to get from here to here. And so the fastest response time of any baseball player that hits all these home runs, the fastest response time was 0.55 of a second. So they proved you know, uh, scientifically, that when anyone hits a home run, they haven't hit it consciously, they've actually hit the ball subconsciously. So getting back to motorsport, 
Peter Collins was uh, telling me about certain things, and just perhaps like I've just explained to you, everything was going over my head. I was instantly depressed. <laughs> uh, there was me thinking I could be a, a Formula One driver. The realization of how inadequate you are uh, just hits you like, a, like an atom bomb going off. Because I've always been honest. If you want to be alive in, in those days and be a race car driver, you have to be honest. Being honest might save your life. If you don't want to be really honest with your talent, then you'd get yourself hurt. And I've done that enough times through breakages of the car. So that evening, I went back to the hotel and um, I uh, made a few phone calls and said, I don't think it's for me. You know, it's, it's great, great experience, but I'll be coming home the next day. And, um, you know, realized that, you know, I don't know what's going on because even driving back to the hotel that night, uh, mechanics in those days used to play the drivers up something wicked. And I drove back to the hotel with the steering wheel doing this all the way back to the hotel. And unbeknown to me, because I was the new kid on the block, the Lotus mechanics, Clive and Doug, who used to drive the truck, they put 200 grams of weight on one of my wheels <laughs> the front, just, to, just to make my life as easy as they could, you know. <laughs> so it was quite difficult. So I had a really bad night, as you can imagine. <laughs> Didn't get much sleep. Turned up at the track the next day. I'm never late for anything. That's another lesson Colin Chapman taught me. And um, I didn't know whether I was even going to drive. And Colin uh, took me to one side and said, look, he said, how are you doing? I said, I'm very grateful, Mr. Chapman. Thank you very much. It's probably not for me. But, you know, and he just looked at me strange. He said, why on earth would you say something like that? I said, well, I was really bad yesterday. I'm really sorry. He, he said, look, he said, the car was broken when we gave it. Yeah, it's broken. He said, he said you've got a nice, nice car today. I said, I've given you new tires, new dog rings in the gearbox. The gearbox will work for you. You know, the engine's been spruced up as well. I don't know whether they changed the engine or just upped it a little bit. And I said, just go in there and do your thing. And uh, Peter Cl Cl Collins was fantastic. And anyway, to this day, I can't fathom it, so I'll share the experience I had with you. And um, coming out the hairpin, it was the old Paul Ricard, which meant the straight was over a mile long. It was a really long straight. And uh, when you drive a Formula One car for the first time, two things inspire you, the acceleration and the terminal speed that you get up to, where if you look sideways, <laughs> I mean, how many people on the motorway sometimes squeeze their foot down to 70, 80, 90, and <laughs> 100, and then, you know, occasionally look sideways, oh, I better slow down now, yeah? We've all felt that, haven't we? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I have. Anyway, we're doing 200 miles an hour, and I'll just switch my phone off. And um, all of a sudden, uh, and I'm not joking when I'm saying this, it was a second lap. I was going down a straight flat out. And um, it was like a bird, a brick, a hammer hit me in the head. I won't hit myself in the head because it hurts these days. But hits you in the head and, and, and uh, I, I was startled because I was, I was going flat out and I wondered what had hit me. And nothing had hit me. Something phenomenally happened to me as a human being and a person. And what happened was, the only way I can describe it is everything's rushing past and instantaneously everything slowed down. And what had happened is I've talked to many people and I needed to understand it and then develop it the brain had upsurged to the new speed. So the brain had slowed the speed down so you control speed. 
That's what great sportsmen and drivers do. They control the speed. And so 200 miles an hour then was like 100, 80, 70, 60, until you have a moment, and then it speed up real quick. But when I got to the corner, I had time to brake, had time to change gear. From one lap to the next, guess what happened? I was six seconds a lap faster. Now, that didn't impress me. I was blown away by it, but Colin Chapman was you know, amazed. What subsequently happened then was um, Mario Andretti and Elio De Angelis a few weeks later were racing in California, and one broke their feet a little bit. One hurt their arm or broke their arm or damaged it anyway. And aerodynamic testing was at Silverstone. They were out of driver. So Colin threw me a bone and said, look, we need someone to go and test aerodynamically the, the Lotus car at, um, at Silverstone. He gave me the opportunity. Nigel Stroud was the testing engineer, and I went from Hethel to Silverstone with him. And it's a very difficult ride. You know when people motivate you, uh, the, the story goes like this. I don't know why we're bothering going to Silverstone. Until we get in the 114s, you know, we can't test anything. I said, yeah, you never engine a Formula One car. What the hell's going on? Oh, thank you, Nigel. It's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> you do realise until you get in the 15s and 14s, it's a complete waste of time changing anything on the car. Well, I'll do my best, Nigel. <laughs> and by the time I got to Silver, I wanted to kill this guy. <laughs> I didn't like him at all. I, and I hope this gets back to him, because I love him now. <laughs> and the story goes, I mean, uh, we were at Silverstone, and we got there and had all the briefing, and the team, the team were disappointed. The two lead drivers were hurt. You know, the ground effects was very powerful then with the skirts. And, um, you know, who was I as a complete newcomer? I hadn't even done a race at that point in time, and I was, I was, I was testing their car. So we unloaded everything else, and I said to Nigel, I said, look, I, re I really need some help. Because, you know, you're going past the old pit lane at Silverstone quite quick. Can you make sure you hold the board out? And I want to know every lap time, because I want to judge where I am with everything. Because we didn't have any radios then, and um, you need to know your lap time, because you know, if you're honest, how hard you're working. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you know, I can't implore you enough with what I'm about to say. It's daunting enough driving a Formula One car with all the world champions that were racing. There were seven or eight world champions racing together when I started. There was loads of Formula One cars. There was 30, 40 plus Formula One cars. You're looking in your mirrors all the time. I've never driven a Silverstone Grand Prix circuit in a Formula One car, and I needed that board to let me know what time I was doing. But more importantly, the old Silverstone, you go through Beckett's, come out of Beckett's, you go down Hangar Strait, you go into Stowe, and at the end of 200 plus miles an hour, you're going into the corner Stowe here, the apex is right here by my right foot here, and then by this lovely lady here, maybe a bit further, maybe two rows, there's a great big catch fence pole, six inches or four inches in diameter with catch fence all along it, that if you get it wrong, you're straight in the catch fence, straight in the poles and straight in the barriers, which are only a few feet after. And that's your runoff. So if you get it wrong, you'll get hurt real bad. So club's the same. Um, Woodcut was a very, very fast chicane and then going into cops. Anyway, I do one lap. And because of the power of the ground effect in those days, you only needed to do 140 miles an hour 
and you could go in a tunnel and drive up the wall of the tunnel, turn upside down in the tunnel, and then just do a full loop of the tunnel, drive back down, because the suction underneath the car was so phenomenal. So you can, you can be amazed the suction at 180, 200 miles an hour until the ground effect dissipates. And it can dissipate, and they call it attaching and detaching. When it detaches, you have a hell of a moment. And then when it reattaches again, you have grip. So anyway, after two laps, I can't breathe. I can't breathe in the car because the G-force around Stowe and Club was so immense. You can't, you're pulling four to five G and you can't breathe until the car gets the G off. Lateral G-force is the most dangerous G-force in the world. Astronaut pilots are only trained to 2.7 G. Does anyone know why? After 2.7 G, brain cells die. Right, that's why we're so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but that's true. Astronauts are only trained to 2.7 G. We were in the middle of uh, Beckett's, because I have a, um, a graph. Um, we were pulling 4.7 G the one way, 4.8 G. So in a split second, we were pulling over 9 G. Anyway, come around again, no board, no lap time, no nothing. Speeding up the conversation. I say, right, this is my fourth lap. I'm almost dying in this car, thinking I can't go any quicker. I was so enraged by no board coming out, I said, right, I'll give it one more lap, because after that I'm going to die or have an accident real bad. I hang on to this car for one lap. I went so quick around every goddamn corner, past the start and finish line, no board. I did the slowest slowdown lap in the history of Formula One. I think I was passed by 50 cars, and there was only 20 on the grid. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't breathe, I was sweating, I was completely demoralized, I had no idea what time I did. The cooperation from the team was non-existent, and I was upset. So then I come into the pit lane slowly, I stop at the pits, we were pretty much at the end of the pits there. And uh, this was 1979, I think it was. Um, and um, no one moved. And I'm thinking, have I lost a wheel or something? And no one came. And then Nigel Stroud eventually came from the pit wall, and he just did this. And I thought, if I had the strength to get out, I'd kill him. <laughs> <laughs> so then he came to the side of the car, and I put the visor up. Because I couldn't get out of the car. I was completely depleted. And he said, I'll never forget the words, and I won't repeat it, but you can um, improvise a little bit. He said, I suppose you think you're mm, funny. And I didn't know what to think, I think. And he just went like this. And it was a 1.12.4, and I just smashed the track record by two seconds. When we sat down as a group and, and looked at the brief originally, um, foiling kind of jumped out as, a, as an option. Traditionally, hydrofoils on powerboats have just been static and they've, they've, they've helped to increase the efficiency slightly. These not only do that, they're, they're active, so they, they help control the roll and pitch of the boat and make the boat not only more comfortable, but, but safer and easier to drive.
we are on the cusp here, I think, of changing the direction of the boat industry. AFS works in conjunction with a reimagined hull concept. Low transfer immersion brings higher efficiencies at cruising speeds. Foil lift replaces transom volume, allowing top speeds to still be achieved. Foils automatically deploy and retract flush with the hull. The foils rake fore and aft, varying the angle of attack. Port and starboard foils are controlled independently. Onboard sensors and a dedicated processor calculate the optimum foil position 100 times per second. Foil position is actively controlled, reacting to the boat state, improving comfort, stability and safety with modes selected by the skipper. We have another about six or seven topics, and um, which with one minute, <laughs> one minute left, I don't think we're well, That's going because to... you've all got to come back two or three times. <laughs> <laughs> we are, um, I keep forgetting I have to ask questions. I'm sort of sat here absolutely enthralled. Um, but we are going to have an uh, opportunity to ask questions. I think we will have people with roving microphones as well. Yes, we do. There we go. Uh, members of the motorsport team. Um, just before we start the questions, um, we've got a couple of minutes. Nigel, I'd love you to tell me a little bit about some of the games that you played with Patrese ahead of the 1992 season. Um, yeah, you have there, there were one or two. Sorry? There were one or two. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> one you're perhaps alluding to was uh, at the end of 91 when we had that epic race with Ayrton in the Typhoon in Australia. Does anyone remember that race? It was quite phenomenal because there was like eight or nine dead cars on the circuit, in the circuit, and we were still racing hell for leather. It was quite astonishing. And um, David Brown, my engineer at the time, lovely man, lovely man. And by the way, Nigel Strauss is a dear friend. And, and after that test we had, uh, we got on famously after that. And um, I called, I don't even remember, but David Brown does. He said, he said, you frightened me to death. And I said, well, why did I frighten you to death? He said, you radioed me and said, is it safe to overtake? <laughs> and I, was following it. I couldn't see a damn thing. <laughs> so I did put my nose out and almost hit a car at about 180, 200 miles an hour. And uh, anyway, um, the lap later, uh, I tried to overtake him on the aquaplane. We were going hell for leather. And I slammed into the concrete wall on the left-hand side. And it really, it really hurt. It, it, it splintered three of my left toes in my left foot. You know when you have an impact and you feel the crunch in your leg? It's not recommended. And so I sat there a little bit stunned in the car, and it was raining cats and dogs and, and everything. And uh, anyway, they, they red flagged the race, which was fantastic. And um, unbeknown to me, I think I was momentarily knocked out because on the cameras I didn't move. So let's say I was just stunned a little bit. And Sid Watkins, the late great Sid Watkins, Professor Watkins, came over and said, Nigel, I hear this faint. Nigel, 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 are you okay? Are you okay? And I sort of remember it, Sid. And he was very vicious if you had a head injury, but you had to go through all these analyses in hospital if you had an injury. I said, oh, fine. He said, well, why haven't you moved? He said, you haven't moved. I said, it's raining out there, Sid. Haven't you seen it's raining out there? <laughs> <laughs> so unbeknown to him, we, uh, we then went back to America. I came second in the race, and I didn't even finish it. It was great. As it happened the lap before. But then I uh, went to America, long story, and my foot was smashed, and they were going to operate immediately. And before they operated, I said, how long's the rehab? They said, three months. I said, my foot's fine. 
And so I had a big debacle in America with all the insurance laws and, uh, and that. So I had to get signed out of hospital. Now, I drove the whole 92 season with a broken left foot, which is actually true. But I trained, and that's what you're alluding to. I had to train so hard, and I put carbon fibre in the, in the foot, so I didn't use any of the side of the foot here. And I lost the most weight I've ever lost because I could taste it, I could smell it, and I could feel it. And I knew when Williams brought me back to Williams after Ayrton Senna and Alan Pross refused to drive for him. It was the only reason I was offered the drive when I retired in Ferrari in 1990 because I'd had enough of being number two. And even when I was number one with Ferrari, then they brought Alan Prost in to buy out my contract in 90 because they wanted a world championship to have number one on the car. I thought, enough people have died, enough people have got hurt, I've, none, I've won enough races, how long is a piece of string? I've, I've, I've had enough. I, I don't want to play this game anymore unless I get the support, unless I have the opportunity to try and win and win a world championship. So I knew I could smell, smell it and feel it that at the end of 91 we had a competitive package the last thing I wanted to do was go in hospital and then have this massive rehab and be on crutches for three or four months. So I just said my foot's fine and some of the bones that were coming out the side of my foot, I could pull them out, which is all right, which is good, a bit painful, but it was all right. And um, anyway, um, we, we got fit enough and we, we worked really hard with the weight because in those days, uh, the car and driver weren't weighed together. So power to weight ratio with Alan Prost out in centre, Nelson Piquet, all my compadrets that I was racing against. They were 30, um, 30 kilos, uh, a little bit lighter than I was. Uh, some were a little bit lighter still. And so power to weight ratio on a Formula One car, regardless what the car is, it's, it's 0.1 of a second a lap every 10 pounds. So when you go out the pit lane, you've got half a second plus in your pocket before you start the race, that's pretty cool because at the end of the race over just, you know, uh, a number of laps, you've got six to ten seconds. Uh, races are won and lost by half a second or a second, two seconds, three seconds. So I worked really hard and I lost. I tried to lose and I worked so hard at it, but I lost, I think, something like that, 16 pounds. And I was the lightest I could possibly be. And so when I got on the scales in um, 1992, uh, Ricardo is behind me. He made me re-weigh three times. <laughs> he, he was blown away just by the weighing machine. And uh, I dehydrated myself the week before. I didn't eat for several days before the race because then your weight went with the car for the actual race. So then you, I could have lighter bits on the car as I got heavier because you needed your strength to actually drive the car physically. So I gained a mental advantage straight away. And then the other thing that we did, because Ricardo was also then quite upset, and Ricardo is one of my best friends and a great teammate. I was normally about two seconds a lap quicker than him with the same car and everything else. And he got himself so psyched up in San Paolo when we were qualifying that I went out and I was two seconds quicker that I had a magical car. So long story short, I, I pleaded with um, uh, Sir Frank and Sir Patrick, um, can we for the second qualifying swap cars? I'll drive his car, he drives mine. I said, because I don't want to go the whole year with him thinking he's got inferior equipment. I said, it's not healthy for us, it's not healthy for the, for the team. I said, he can have my qualifying car and I'll qualify his. Long story short, my first flying lap in his car was 1.75 seconds quicker than him in his car. 
And that cemented an amazing relationship with Ricardo and I for the whole year. So we didn't sort of play any games. He actually tipped his hat to me that uh, I could drive the car a little bit better than he could. Right, we must ask some readers questions because time keeps ticking on. Um, if you've got a question, uh, please put your hand up um, and write. Okay, so well, the first one up was, was over here. So let's, let's start there. Nigel, what was the most, uh, what, was the, what car between Formula One and the IndyCar during setup, what would respond better to the changes? Um, first of all, it's a great question because, you know, we with the engineers, instead of like today's present Formula One, have a minimum of 20 to 50 engineers. We had one engineer that worked with the driver, and then we had the chief engineer, which was obviously. Patrick Head or Adrian Lewy or whatever. So we did change things all the time that we had to make work and set up the ride heights and springs and the roll bars and so on and so forth and the bump rubbers. Um, I, I think the, first of all, it goes into two parts. Um, the first part is medium high speed corners respond aerodynamically. So you change the front wing, the rear wing, the splitters, uh, the skirts, if you had them at that time or not. Very powerful. Very, very powerful. Because when you're running along and bottoming, those skirts get worn. So what downforce you have at that point in time, you won't have as the race progresses. So you have to set the car up to be as balanced as you can through the whole race, which is so important. Now, because of all the settings they can have and because of the hydraulic diff, and because the car is being micromanaged for the driver, the driver just gets a radio message to say, do that with the diff, do that with that. And they always drive a fairly neutral car, so they never have to worry about driving the car. We had to drive around all those problems. So we, we, we broke it down where aerodynamically we had to get the best possible compromise. Because you want it to be fairly good in the fast corners for what I call the pucker factor. What you didn't want to do is go around corners at 180, 200 miles an hour and worry about it, you know, that it steps out on you, because that gets your attention. Um, but equally, you could get it set up perfectly for the fast corners, and then in the medium speed corners, it would either understeer or oversteer. It never had the same balance, so it was always a bit of a compromise. But then, because you're not overpowering the car, that's when the roll bars come in and you've got an adjustable front roll bar then that you can make it softer or stiffer. And, and then, of course, it's aerodynamic load as you go faster coming down on the packers or coming down on the bump rubber, and you had to manage that gap between the shock absorber um, and the suspension. And so the whole thing was, was an art form and a compromise, and, and you worked really hard to actually attain that. So, um, yeah, you just did the best job you could all the time, and you... Every race was different. So uh, now, at present day, they have various um, simulators running with the real-time car at the racetracks, and they'll get a phone call from headquarters back in whatever country they operate from, say, change this spring, change this roll bar, you go 0.2 of a second quicker. And so all they do is change the car at the track, and it works. So that's, that's, that's magical. It's, it's, it's dreaming. Right, another question. Down here. We've got a mic on, on its way. Don't, don't worry. <clears throat> um, first of all, um, I'm, I'm honoured to meet Nigel Mansell. I grew up watching him on TV. Um, 
I've heard you talk a few times about 1986 and how close you came, but I'm interested in 1987 because you started that season strongly and you were leading the championship after round two. Um, by the time you won in Silverstone, phenomenal drive that day, by the way, passing Piquet, um, it was very tight at the top. Senna led with 31, you were second with 30, Piquet had 30, and Prost had 27. Um, then came the two races in Hockenheim and Hungary. You were leading in Hockenheim on lap 25 out of 44, your car broke down. You were leading in Hungary with five laps to go, your car broke down. Um, you ended up 18 points behind. You closed it down um, by winning in Mexico, Jerez, and in um, Austria. And then you obviously had your accident that you mentioned earlier, and um, we saw a clip of it in Suzuka. But I have never really seen interviews where you spoke about um, Germany and Hungary, because in my opinion, that cost you the championship that season, because you were consistently faster than PK, but it's just that you were having reliability issues. And I know at one stage in Jerez, you did mention um, something about you were concerned about the Honda thing, because PK was going to move to Lotus in 88, where he would have... This guy knows more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> Come up here! <laughs> Let me answer some of your questions. I mean, look, I've just wanted to talk to you for so long. I've never <laughs> let, let me answer. These are great questions, and um, you know, thank you for asking them. Uh, in no particular order, uh, when you're signed as a number two driver, you are simply there to support the number one driver. I didn't get that memo. And so to beat your number one driver um, is um, something that... Uh, can cause some challenges. You alluded to the Silverstone Grand Prix in 87. Uh, one of my wheel mate weights came off uh, within a couple of laps start the race and the vibration, I couldn't see the corners going into the corners and I was losing grip because the tire was bouncing off the circuit. So I did that stop and obviously I didn't get the memo that 24 seconds day down with 22 laps or three laps to go. I wasn't supposed to catch, pass and win the race. The, the point being, the, the, the thing, uh, some uh, artful um, trickery, there's a good word, tricks, magic. Uh, when I was winning Monza, um, I was out in front of Monza, going to win the Monza race, all of a sudden from one lap to another I lost about 190 horsepower. And they had the intercooler, which was, um, uh, the flap was adjusted by pit to car at that point in time. And so they just closed my flap with the intercooler and it was running hotter, so I lost power. Then Nelson caught me five, six seconds, passed me, went off into the distance, then they opened my flap up a couple of seconds. They had the ability to adjust the car. Mexico City that year was an astonishing race and uh, this is factual, so I'll say to you. I used to come out the Parabolica um, two or three miles an hour faster than my teammate across the start-finish line. The reason we knew that is we had a timing line at the start-finish line. But then at the end of the straight, my teammate was over 12 miles an hour faster. <laughs> How does that work? <laughs> so we got to the point of qualifying, and I got all the journalists that were sort of half on my side, and I said to Honda, I said, look, I don't want to cause any problems. I said, but, you know, put the computer chip that my teammate's got in the engine, either in my engine for qualifying, or we're going to have a problem. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, look, here's the times. How can I come out of that corner faster? At this point here, and then I'm 12 miles now slower down here. I said, stop playing the games. Put it in for qualifying. You know, let's, let's do what we need to do to play fair. Long story short, again, um, all of a sudden, go out for qualifying. I'm 14 miles now faster. That's why I don't like the electronic 
thing with a Formula One car. You can just press a button and you can do all sorts of things. So there was a lot of things that happened that year. Um, I made some mistakes. I was under a lot of pressure. Um, Nelson never worked as a team with me, with his engineer. Um, and uh, I never got the memo that I was supposed to support him, so he didn't like the fact that I was quicker at times. And it was like, I think it was the year before in 86, uh, I really didn't make friends, although Nelson and I are great friends now, I just didn't respect what he did as a race car driver for his teammate. And when Paul Jacques Lafitte had that terrible accident at Brands Hatch in 86 when he broke his legs at the start, do you remember that? We had to have a restart, my car broke a drive shaft. So I had to go in the T car, which was always set up for Nelson. So it had his gear ratios in, it had his seat in, it had his pedal set, his steering wheel, his gear shift, and it was really alien to me. And the only thing they had time to change was the actual seat, because I, I couldn't really sit in his seat. He's a bit smaller than I am, a lot smaller than I am. <laughs> but um, I was going to say something rude then, but I didn't. <laughs> Anyway, the biggest thing that happened, he made one mistake in the race. I got past him and won in his T car that he could choose the best car for the race, and I beat him in his own car, his T car. So he didn't enjoy that experience either. But you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the thing is, when you think, you know, I've driven with multiple world champions. I mean, certainly Nelson is one of them, Alan Prost is another. And the one thing Ayrton taught me when I won my world championship, when I stood on the stop step at Hungary, he said, now you understand why we're such bastards, he said to me. He said, because, you know, this is the best feeling and moment in the world and we don't, never want it and we'll do anything and anything. And I didn't. I was just a sportsman. And even Bernie's told me that. Because I said to Bernie, why did I have the problems I had? He said, he weren't political. He said, you're just a sportsman and you're innocent at times. And he said, these guys are totally different. Um, it's, oh, it's a very fast hand, uh, just, just here. Excellent draw of the hands. It's really fast. <laughs> uh, question about the India guy. And how was the transition from Formula One to the Indy? Obviously, you adapted brilliantly because you won it. But do you think it was easier going from F1 to Indy as opposed to Jack Villeneuve coming from Indy to F1? Uh, I think the, the hardest thing is going from F1 to Indy because <clears throat> in F1, you've got the best of everything. Best circuits, best, best safety, um, uh, also um, the best rewards, if you like. Uh, going to India at the time I did, you go back into the real thoroughbred racing, hardcore, um, totally different racing. Um, you know, the, the advances from automatic gearboxes or semi-automatic gearboxes didn't exist. Um, it was gear shifts. Driving a car on ovals that just want to turn you left all the time and into a spin. And I think the biggest thing, which was a shock, was um, when I went testing at um, Phoenix for the first time. Um, we were averaging um, 210 miles an hour average, uh, fastest ever Grand Prix car. I'd only averaged 150 at Silverstone, but it was the old Silverstone, which Keke did in '85. And we were doing laps in the under 20 seconds. And I was getting physically sick and dizzy. Uh, I mean, pulling G constantly without two or three seconds let off down the short shoot straights. Because Phoenix was a tri-oval. 
So it wasn't just two corners. Um, New Hampshire, which the gentleman alluded to when I went on my birthday, it was two straights and, and, and two corners at each end, which were uniform in a way. That took a tremendous amount of getting used to, and then the super speedways, which was Michigan 500 and Indianapolis, was alien and staggeringly frightening. Um, because my, um, uh, my quickest ever lap, I think, was 233.75 miles an hour average. So 233.75 miles an hour average. And there's a funny story there, I've got to go off at a tangent, because when I was a steward at Spa, after a few years Lewis Hamilton was racing, he came in and he, I was one of the stewards just sitting there quiet, and he berated all the stewards and said, the trouble is with you lot, you haven't got a clue what you're talking about, he said to the stewards. <laughs> <laughs> he, said, he said, we are Grand Prix drivers, we're the only ones who drive this speed and know what's going on, basically you're talking out your ass. And... I didn't say anything. I didn't want to say anything. I wanted to crawl under the table. And then the chief steward said, what do you think of that comment, Nigel? <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at him. I said, well, you might have a point. <laughs> but, but I said to him very politely, I said, Lewis, I said, look, we're all new in this business. I said, but what's the fastest ever qualifying lap you've ever done? Because obviously it was a hot shoe. And he told me 140-something miles an hour. I said, oh, that's great. I said, well, my fastest ever qualifying lap was 233.75 miles an hour. He just went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good little story, and Lewis is, a, Lewis is a good chap. He's just misunderstood sometimes. But getting back to IndyCar, um, poor, dangerous as hell. You know, back in the uh, 90s, uh, I think more stupidity than bravery came into it. I mean, you saw my back on the intro film. Um, it smashed my back up pretty bad at Phoenix. Went in backwards at 220, 148 stitches later. But two weeks later, I was qualifying. So we, we still got the job done. Right, we have a, a very fast hand. This is, we're gonna, I'm really sorry, we're going to have to make this last question. Um, but is there a mic here? Um, I'm so sorry. I'd hate to be the one to stop this. Please, please don't blame me. Blame, blame management. They're over there. Hi, um, Adrian Newey has said that uh, Max Verstappen reminds him of you. How, how do you feel about that? I, I, I feel it's a great compliment. Um, I think Max is a stunning uh, talent. Um, I, I, I wish for Max everything. He's got the great support of Red Bull. He's a young driver. He's one fantastic. He's had a few oopsies, uh, which he didn't need to have, which is frustrating for the fans and the sport. Um, he got squeezed at Spa, but he probably played a bigger part in that. Um, but Max is a stunning um, revelation in Formula 1, as I hope Charles Clare is, as I hope other great young drivers get the opportunity to be as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's nice to be remembered. Um, and uh, I can just, you know, thank um, Destiny in a way that um, to work with the late, great uh, Paul Newman and Carl Haas and have the adventure in America that I had, it, it wasn't something that I would have chosen, but uh, to race on those tracks and to race against those awesome competitors over there was is incredibly dynamic. And, and I think the other experience I had 
uh, was coming back after almost two years, and it saddens me to share it with you, but you know, I had my whole life ahead of me in America. I had contracts um, all sorted till the end of 1997, 98. But when the late great Ayrton Senna and Roland Braxenberger died at Imola in 94 on the fateful two days, Saturday and Sunday, uh, there wasn't a Formula One driver racing in Formula One at that time. And, and Bernie, as magical as he is, he, he worked an incredible bit of magic and he brought all my contracts out worldwide for quite a few years, which I didn't figure at the time because he still owes me two years' money. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, I have mentioned this to him and I'm going to write him a letter again. So. <laughs> but he brought me back to Formula One, but then the most incredible thing happened. I came back just for four races, if you remember, in 94. And I think the hardest thing I've ever done in my life is to um, drive a car with a deceased driver before. That was pretty ugly. But then to qualify on a second pole, first race. And then the last race especially, um, forced Michael to go out in his um, you know, incredible car, his favorite car, uh, their words, not mine. And he had a real big accident trying to beat my pole time in Australia at um, Adelaide. And the almighty accident wrote the car off. And so I was on pole position, having not driven a Formula One car for a considerable time. And then I remember the encouragement I had when I came to the track the next day, because the officials and the police were waiting for me to escort me to the tower. And I thought, what have I done now? <laughs> So they, there was assembled officials and some very powerful people there saying, what the hell did you do last night? I'm going, well, I didn't do anything. Said, yes, you did. You stopped all the work at the chicane. And unbeknown to me, innocently, and this is what I've got to say to you when you're innocent, I came back, as I normally do, to check the mechanics and the car. And um, there was people machining the curbs down at the first chicane, you know. And I said, what are you doing? And they said, oh, Michael Schumacher had his accident here. I said, so what? I said, we've qualified. You can't change the circuit between the race and qualifying. I said, leave it. I said, tell him to go around the corner, not over it. <laughs> <laughs> so the Australians being fellow British people, they downed tools and went home, didn't they? <laughs> So I come to the racetrack happy, I'm on pole and all the rest of it. I have never had such a bollocking all my life. <laughs> I'm threatening this, I'm threatening that. You will not get a good start. You will not interfere with the race. Michael Schumacher and Damon Hill are going for the world championship. You'll get a bad start. You'll come in behind them. You'll watch the race and you will not interfere with the race. Da, 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 da. I'm going, oh, sugar, man, here we go again. So. To manufacture a bad start, if you watch the race, you can see that I pulled away and went, come on, guys, and then pulled in behind. One of the worst starts I've made. And then I just followed them and watched the race. And we all know what happened. I was going, Damon, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. <laughs> and I had, obviously, a front seat watching the race, and we went on to win it. And obviously, we had the most fantastic win coming back. And, and the other thing, I was going across the Atlantic every week. So I was still obliged to do my IndyCar career and do Formula One at the same time, plus testing. So it was a hell of a schedule. 
And then I had a contract the following year with Williams, which they unfortunately didn't honour again, but I won't go into that at this time. But, um, yeah, there's, there's lots of things. Um, we could do another six of these, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, was, it was good fun. It was, it was a lot of things, but a lot of things people don't know. And um, all I would say is that I think the drivers should embrace the day and age they race in today. I think the safety and the rewards and the tracks and, and, and everybody do an absolutely fantastic job for them. And um, I think they should appreciate the fans a bit more throughout the world and, and just embrace it because Formula One and the technology is phenomenal. Excellent. Well, um, I hope this has been as interesting and as amazing as it, as it was for me. Um, I just wanted to say that the winner of the signed print is Alan Upton. Um, oh, God, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so that was a signed print. Yeah. As, so, as most of the cars do, it's gone up in flames. <laughs> yeah. um, so you can collect that from the registration desk. Um, Simon Aaron, thank you so much for joining me on stage. I've, I've just been sitting here listening <laughs> to you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> right. In, in closing, if I, if I can be so bold, uh, the biggest thanks, seriously, is all of you. I mean, um, the people power we had racing at Silverstone or Brands Hatch and the interreaction we had with the fans worldwide, but especially in the home country, you're very special, you know you are, and you're very dear to our hearts, and thank you for all the support that you've given us over the years. So thank you all, and safe journey home. Nigel, it's, uh, I was supposed to keep it to an hour and a quarter. I totally failed, um, but I think for very good reason. It's been absolutely brilliant. Ladies and gentlemen, the 1992 Formula One world champion, and there's no one else like him, Nigel Mansell. Princess Yachts, the UK's leading luxury yacht manufacturer. Pride sponsors of motorsports Formula One coverage.